Today's episode is taken from The Memoirs of the Sansons by Charles Henry Sanson. Do you ever notice how occupations tend to run in the family? That is, your job oftentimes is often what your father did, or your grandfather, or perhaps your mother, or an aunt, or even an uncle. Farmers tend to descend from farmers, businessmen from businessmen, and if you widen that out, the most educated jobs, such as doctors and lawyers, tend to stem from a long line of well-educated family. Now, obviously, that's not always the case, especially in modern American society, where social class is not nearly as static as it has been in history. But take a look back in the past, and almost every profession is part of a family lineage, often unbroken, and it can stretch generations, even centuries. Sometimes this was because one's profession was hereditary, but it was more so the case that education was the responsibility of the household, so naturally they would only educate what they would know, and that would be their profession. Of course, there are always jobs that are, let's just say, not well beloved by humanity. I'm sure you can use your imagination. Sanitation workers, tax collectors, whatever the historical equivalent of a telemarketer is. As long as history has existed, jobs have existed that few people actually wished to do. Now, in a society where profession is hereditary, this isn't a problem. Oh, you don't like your job? Sorry, you're born into it. And even if that wasn't the case, it was hard to move outside the shadow of your parents' occupation. The societal pressure to just conform was extremely great, greater than we can ever imagine. And even if one obtained the education necessary to switch professions, society would not just allow anybody to start over tabula rasa. And one of the dirtiest jobs known to man was that of the executioner. Not exactly a beloved job, let me tell you that. Headsmen could be extremely wealthy, yet they were isolated from their community because of their line of work. No member of the family could escape the cultural pressure. Thus, of all the occupations you can imagine, the job of executioner was the one passed down from generation to generation the most. Imagine that, being born into an occupation where your job is to kill people. And if you didn't like it, well, you weren't changing profession, so you might as well get good at it. And of all the families of executioners out there, no family was more famous than the Sanson family of Paris. It was said, quote, They were a race of headsmen, through whose hands every state victim, as well as every common criminal, had passed during the two centuries. They had exercised their functions for nearly 200 years. They had hung, beheaded, quartered, and tortured from father to son without interruption. And the social position of the first of the race, previous to the assumption of the executioner's office, had placed his descendants on a somewhat higher level than the men belonging to the bloody profession. It was thought by all that the last of the Sansons could not have but interesting things to relate. End quote. 
As it turns out, he did. Henry Sanson, the last of the executioner family, wrote his family's history of the past 200 years. And it reads like an early modern version of Forrest Gump, except instead of just meeting famous people, they were executing them. This is the story of that family, those famous people, and the toll it took on all of their psyches. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. The Sansons were originally a small family from Abbeville, France. They belonged to the bourgeoisie, an upper-middle-class family serving the needs of many kings, from Henry IV to Louis XIII. Charles Sanson, the first of many Charles Sansons, just get used to that right now. Charles Sanson was the first headsman in the Sanson family. He was born in 1635 and fought in the regiment of Marquis de Labiessire. However, in 1662, he was wounded from a fall from his horse and taken in by a peasant in Dieppe. Here, he fell in love with the peasant's daughter, Marguerite, and it's like out of a romance novel. He leaves, but his heart yearning returns. The father forbids him to come back, yet he sneaks back to see Marguerite months later. She loves him, but sends him away, saying, it's forbidden love. I mean, it's literally the plot of a dime store book. Now, one day, he learns that his cousin, Paul Bertold, has decided to take to bed the prettiest girl in town. Apprehensive, through questioning, Charles learns that this girl was not interested in Paul, so the cousin had brought a sleeping tonic to slip the girl and then rape her. That girl, he realized, was Marguerite. Horrified, Charles took to Marguerite's house where she was already drugged and dueled his own cousin and an accomplice, forcing the retreat of both. Then came the egregious sin for which he was committed. In his own words, quote, At midnight, hearing no stir in the house, I began to apprehend that the sleeping draw had killed the girl and the servant, who had also been drugged, and this fear was the cause of my loss. The rascally valet, according to his agreement with Bertald, had left the door ajar. I entered the house and went to the poor girl's room. Thereupon, I confess with great shame and contrition that I forgot all the good advice, counsels, and lessons I had just given to my cousin. When I saw the girl whom I loved, she appeared to me more beautiful than my good intentions, and they vanished like smoke. I was neither wiser nor more discreet than he would have been, and I committed the crime for which I had upbraided him so bitterly. May God forgive me in another world, since I shall suffer in this one for my sin. End quote. In the morning, he met his cousin Paul to continue the duel in the middle of town. However, Paul instead pointed out the stockades erected there instead, and the man who was tending them, Marguerite's father. Her father, it turned out, was an executioner. It was too late to turn back now. The Marquis, of whom Charles was vassal to, ordered him under arrest for his affection and his rape, but Charles took flight, intending passage to India, and he stopped one last time at his love's residence and found her. Quote, 
Marguerite, my beloved Marguerite, was stretched on the leathern bed used for the infliction of torture. Her cruel father, looking more like a tiger than a man, had placed her foot in the boot of torture. The boot of torture is basically like these iron shackles that compress the feet until they crush the bone. And with his own hand, he was striking a spike, red with his daughter's blood. At each blow, he repeated with rage, Confess! Confess! And the poor girl, throwing herself backwards with many tears and shrieks, implored God and the saints of paradise to bear witness to her innocence. End quote. Into this cruel event, Charles swept in. Confessing his own guilt to stop the torture of his love, he professed his love, and she professed her love back. Yeah, listener, you heard that right. Even after her rape, she still loved him. I mean, talk about absolutely dime-store material. Anyways, he proposed to marry Marguerite, and her father retorted that he would only allow such a marriage on one condition. That Charles become an executioner like himself. You see... Had Charles realized that Marguerite was the executioner's daughter, he would have probably stayed away, even out of love, for the family of the executioner was considered dirty, untouchable, almost criminal. There were few, if any, citizens who weren't above the headsman. Thus, the father wanted Charles to atone for his crimes by lowering himself to the lowest class of citizenry, an atonement that would carry weight for the generations of children he would propagate. And so, for love, Charles became an executioner, an extreme step down for his social status. Apparently, in the beginning, he wasn't a good one. In his first execution, he was forced to break the condemned on the wheel. This involved breaking the limbs of the convict and like threading the skin and the flesh of each through the spokes of a wheel after which the convict was tortured until he expired. Upon attempting to strike the victim after threading the limbs through the spokes of the wheel, Charles fell into a fit and was jeered by the onlookers. To cap off all of this tragedy, his wife died early into marriage with the birth of their first child. As his ancestor recorded, quote, The happiness which Charles Sanson had so dearly paid for passed away as a dream. End quote. After her death, Charles moved away to Paris. He originally lived in the House of Pillory, colloquially known as the Executioner's Mansion. It was like this octagonal structure with a revolving cage in the middle of the courtyard and a shed to store the bodies for a day or two before removal to the cemetery. And this was supposed to be his workspace, his place in which all but the most public of executions took place. Now, naturally, he didn't want to reside there indefinitely, so he moved his residency outside of the mansion. Yet his work continued there without ceasing. His work is, unsurprisingly, executions. But I think it's crazy the breadth and the depth to which he had to commit himself. I mean, this is not a simple affair. Almost all of them are public. Each one is specific to the crime, and often elaborate displays of both torture and repentance, both public and private, on the part of the condemned, were required. In just his residency alone, he broke people on the wheel, cut off appendages, beheaded others, hanged, burnt, tortured individuals, and these were of all shapes and sizes when it comes to criminals. I mean, yeah, some were murderers and poisoners, but many others were just simple horse thieves, forgers, 
lesser criminals. Some of them committed for treasonous acts, but it was pretty obvious that all of it was political. They were both male and female, of all ages, from youth to the old. He even executed children. Also, because he was the only executioner of Paris, any person condemned would go to his chopping block, including those who were famous. And this is the most memorable part of the Sanson accounts, his continual run-ins with extremely wealthy and powerful elites who were put to death by his and later generation swords. Now, when I stated earlier that their lives were like that of Forrest Gump, I was not exaggerating. For a historian, it's like a gallery of dukes and duchesses and marquises and all these others that crop up time and again in French history, only to be felled by a Sanson. For you, listener, you may not pick up on all of these names, but rest assured, I guarantee there are going to be a couple that you will know very well. Now, Charles' first high-profile execution was that of a Madame Angelique Nicole Tiquette, a wife who had conspired to murder her husband in 1699. Now you, loyal listener, probably recognize this as only 20 years removed from the affair of the poisons that we've covered previously in this podcast. And apparently, husband murder was still all the rage, particularly through poisoning. Now the Marquis was condemned to die by beheading. The account of her execution in this dirty business is awful. Charles writes, quote, She knelt on the platform, said a short prayer, and turning to her confessor said, I thank you for your consolations and kind words. I shall bear them to the Lord. She arranged her headdress and long hair, and after kissing the block, she looked at my ancestor and said, Sir, will you be good enough to show me the position I am to take? Sanson, impressed by her look, had but just the strength to answer that she had only put her head on the block. Angelique obeyed and said again, Am I well thus? A cloud passed before my ancestor's eyes. He raised with both hands the heavy two-edged sword, which was to be used for the purpose of decapitation, described with it a kind of semicircle, and let the blade fall with its full weight on the neck of the handsome victim. The blood spurted out, but the head did not fall. A cry of horror rose from the crowd. Sanson struck again. Again the hissing sword was heard, but the head was not separated from the body. The cries of the crowd were becoming threatening. Blinded by the blood which spurted at every stroke, Sanson brandished his weapon a third time with a kind of frenzy. At last, the head rolled at his feet. His assistants picked it up and placed it on the block, where it remained for some time, and several witnesses asserted that even in death it retained its former calmness and beauty. End quote. Now, there's a few things to note in that passage that I find absolutely fascinating. First is the obvious one. These executions were often botched, and that's not really a surprise. All of the Sansons studied anatomy and trained to make every execution go smoothly, yet there are always times where, due to a bad stroke or a short rope or some user error, an execution did not go as planned, normally at the expense of the convicted. And it's really hard to fault the Sansons, as this business was done almost exclusively through trial and error. I mean, it's not like you can actually practice for an execution, at least not with all the factors 
that would cause undue stress like the shouting crowd, the heat and the sweat, the panicked convict. I gander the majority of us could not perform a flawless execution. So bloody as it may be, we ought to throw the Sansons a bone in that regard. But I think kind of more fascinatingly is the bond between the crowd and the condemned that you saw there where they started threatening him when he was botching that execution. Now, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History has a really good episode on this relationship that existed between the crowd and the convict, which, although they wished to see the deed done and done bloodily, they also wanted to make sure that the pain involved was just enough punishment for their misdeeds. No more, no less. Should the execution linger too long, the crowd would get angry and could easily devolve into a mob. This is something that the Sansons are acutely aware of and a problem that will crop up time and again in their histories. Now, Charles Sutton, also named Charles, took over the profession in 1703. He married his stepmother's sister in 1707, and that sounds gross, but it's one of those unfortunate necessities of being an executioner. You see, being an executioner, you were so reviled by the rest of society that you couldn't find anybody to marry, and that meant that you were forced into intermarriage with a lot of your family members. Now, that isn't to say that their wealth was tied to their class. The Sansons were pretty wealthy. The first Charles sold his house and his grounds for 100,000 livres. However, they were isolated from the rest of the French, forced to live in seclusion, with the exception of their work. They were shunned to the point that even contact with them was considered heinous. And part of this is just chalked up to superstition, and part of it's also to the dirtiness of the job. It was considered a highly dishonorable job, as I've said before, almost on the level of a criminal itself. There's a notorious incident that really illustrates this point. At one evening, Charles Henry Sanson dined with an unnamed marquis at an inn, and it's a very pleasant dinner with conversation and food, and here I'll quote the memoirs directly because they're great. Quote, After dessert, I ordered my horse and retired, after profusely thanking the lady for her gracious greeting. But hardly had I left the room when a gentleman, who was acquainted with me, said, Madame, do you know the young man who has just dined with you? No, she answered. He told me he was an officer of parliament. Well, he is the executioner of Paris. I know him quite well. He has just executed a man, or rather superintended an execution, for he seldom does the work himself. At these words, the Marquis nearly fainted. She remained speechless, and in confusion, shed tears, and remembering that I had touched her hand, she asked for a basin of water and washed her hands. She stepped into the carriage, full of anger, and during her journey, she thought of the means of avenging herself. Shortly after her arrival in Paris, she presented a petition to Parliament, in which, after relating what had taken place, she asked that I should be sentenced to beg her pardon with a rope around my neck for the insult of which she said I had been guilty, and that, for the safety of the public, I should henceforth wear a distinctive sign so that all should know me. End quote. Now that particular incident ended up in court, where Charles Henry and the court sparred in the memoirs for like 20 pages on the criminality of simply eating with a marquee. That's how shunned the executioner was from society. 
And although the court case is eventually thrown out, the fact that it was taken to court in the first place describes the condition that the Sanson family found itself in simply being an executioner. The work did not stop for Charles. He found himself as busy as his father had been. Notably, however, in his memoirs, Charles brings up a point off unmentioned in the history books. The fact that many of these convicted criminals were possibly innocent, or if not innocent, at least beloved by the people, yet the executioner was not supposed to pass judgment upon the matter. He was only supposed to pass his blade. Take, for example, Count de Horn. He was convicted for murdering a Jew over a hefty sum of money, yet many rumors abounded that the king regent had arrested him and falsely pressed the claim. Charles himself held doubts of his guilt. Yet at the hour of his execution, he performed his duty, and it was going to be a gruesome one, a torture on the wheel. Conveniently, the Count died of strangulation before the enactment. Now, that's not originally in the cards, but a dead criminal was a dead criminal in the regent's eyes. Another example is that of an unnamed boy of 15, a brother of the famous robber Cartouche. Cartouche was executed on the wheel by Sanson, and in the summer of 1722, over 60 accomplices were rounded up to be tortured and possibly executed, and Cartouche's brother was one of them. He was suspended by his armpits for two hours, yet he lost consciousness and died during the torture, and his culpability was questionable. This is another one of those cruel turns of fate for being an executioner. Because their occupation requires utmost loyalty to the crown and to the government, they have to take the word of the courts as law. But obviously, those courts weren't always right, and more importantly, they were often politically motivated in the motions that they handed down. As we will find out, that point will become a serious rub in the Sanson family. Charles Sanson, the second one, died in 1726 at the age of 45, passing his profession down to his son, Charles Jean-Baptiste Sanson, who was only seven at the time. As such, a large gap exists in the narrative of the memoirs. They pick back up at the first recorded execution by Gabriel Sanson, the uncle of Charles, and it was a horrifying one. A mentally unwell man named Damien had attacked the king, and as a result was, quote, ordered that he be taken to the grieve, and on a scaffold erected for the purpose, that his chest, arms, thighs, and calves be burnt with pincers, his right hand, holding the knife with which he committed the said parricide, burnt in sulfur, that boiling oil, melted lead, and rosin, and wax mixed with sulfur, be poured into his wounds, and after that, his body be pulled and dismembered by four horses, and the members and body consumed in fire, and the ashes scattered to the winds. The court orders that his property be confiscated to the king's prophet, that before the said execution, Damien be subjected to question ordinary et extraordinary, to make him confess the names of his accomplices, orders that the house in which he was born be demolished, and that no other building be erected on the spot. End quote. Now, in the accounts of the Sansons, this was as horrible as their executions got before the abolition of torture, yet horrible it was. Gabrielle Sanson could barely go through with the act, 
suffering a nervous breakdown at numerous moments in the execution in which other members had to take over for him. And that brings us to another consideration, the absolute mental toll that these executions took on the headsmen. We don't often consider the impact on the human psyche of torture and execution in gruesome ways of hundreds of people, yet obviously you had to. You have to remember, you're born into this profession. You didn't apply. And I'm sure there are many people out there with the grit to be able to go to the chopping block every day without any sort of mental incident. But if you're born into a family, it's more just like a flip of the coin whether you're going to be good with it. You can only build so much into an individual. And it's not exactly the sort of profession you can take a young boy to. Here you go, son. Make sure you swing a sword twice your size so it takes off the head in just one thwack instead of five. And just from the journals and memoirs alone, it seems to me that many of the Sanson family suffered from depression as a result of their occupation. Certainly many of them would choke during the execution itself. And I don't want to belabor the point, but again, this isn't a chosen job. And that is something that is so hard to wrap the mind around in modern America, where we get the freedom to choose our occupation. Many of the Sansons hated their profession, hated the cultural animosity towards their position, hated the bloody work, hated the lack of love found in all of it, but they're forced to do it all the same. I'm sure, given those circumstances, many of us would turn to the bottle or depression, as many of them did. Next in line to the Sanson family was Charles Henry Sanson, the most famous Sanson of all. For Charles Henry was the executioner during quite possibly the most famous executions in recorded history, those of the French Revolution. The French Revolution thrived on executions. It was defined by them. It's certainly the most memorable aspect that the public remembers. The image of the guillotine is explicitly tied to the revolution. But it's important to also note that the social upheaval that the revolution caused this was not an open and shut revolution. It was more like a cultural disease that spread and grows higher and larger and it breaks its own borders and it floods into the neighboring countries. The radicalism that ensued led to the death of tens of thousands of innocents and this constant revolving door of leadership that would not stop for a decade. And it was into this whirlwind that Charles Henry Sanson found himself. Executions were needed, and just because the world around them was falling apart didn't mean they could slack on their job. Thankfully, one part that had evolved was the method of execution. The changing of the guard from the use of the wheel for executions to the guillotine occurred overnight when the state's general asked for its abolition in 1789. In its place, Dr. Guillotin with advice from Charles Henry Sanson, created the guillotine, the equalizer of the masses. The story goes that one night Sanson was playing the violin with a German engineer by the name of Schmidt. In between songs, he discussed his predicament with Schmidt, who drew up the guillotine as they played. Thus, as Sanson's grandson said, quote, It was thus that the guillotine came into the world, as it were, in the middle of a concert. End quote. Now, I always wondered, why decapitation? Why not use hanging or a firing squad or something else just as quick? Well, the reason is actually that decapitation had, up until the revolution, only been reserved for the upper class. The majority of people were hanged. 
Thus, the guillotine was a way to lift up the majority of society into a process that in a way kind of glorifies their death as a noble one, while also sweeping low the nobility who had hitherto been privy to only the headsmen. The guillotine was also considered a humane death, and having heard the accounts of those broken on the wheel, it's not hard to see why. Pretty much any execution method would be preferable to that. It also eliminated a lot of the human error that could occur on the chopping block, the tremble of the hand that could lead to a hackneyed job, no pun intended. And most importantly, it was quick, quick enough that it would be easy to commit a series of executions in a single hour where only one could previously take place. Thus, in 1791, when the guillotine was adopted, Charles had already executed many people on the behalf of the National Assembly. But the adoption of the guillotine changed the nature of execution. Now, the French Revolution is a tumultuous time, and there's already little love for the executioners. Charles Henry found himself multiple times in situations where the public is calling for his head. Once he is even arrested on conspiracy after entertaining some of the press at his mansion. His defendants eventually retracted their allegations after some spirited oratory by him and his lawyer. But even with this, the spirit of the revolution is not lost on Charles. In December of 1789, he petitioned the National Assembly to restore him the rights of citizenship, arguing that either capital punishment be abolished, or his rights as a national citizen be recognized. And his argument goes on for a while, but this little snippet I really loved. He said, quote, A ruffian sets fire to a citizen's house, dips his hand in his neighbor's or his father's blood, or conspires against his country. You are informed of his crimes, you demand his death, you go to see him die, and yet you will not recognize as a citizen, and you persist in considering as infamous the official who inflicts upon the miscreant a punishment which you have called for. Frenchmen, be just and logical. Confess that the crime must remain unpunished or that an executioner is needed to punish it. Confess that neither the magistrate nor the executioner, but the culprit alone, is guilty of violating the laws of nature. That without this just and legitimate crusade against crime, society must be continually molested. End quote. Charles Henry Sanson is pretty dang good at oratory, isn't he? Now, unfortunately, the case is never decided upon by the National Assembly, but in doing so, no one ever questioned his citizenship again, and he was treated in public as an ordinary citizen. And there's one last interesting point to this little case. I find it fascinating that the assemblymen who agreed the most vehemently that capital punishment must be abolished was none other than Maximilian Robespierre, who in a scant three years would be the leader of the Reign of Terror, in which some 16,000 people would be executed by decree via the guillotine, including himself. Talk about dramatic irony. Charles Henry Sanson set up the guillotine in the now infamous Place du Carrousel, the scene of every execution in Paris from thenceforth in the Revolution, and they were numerous. His grandson stated, some days were a wholesale massacre, so many bodies there were. But as I said before, the Sansons had many run-ins with famous figures in French history, and their most famous run-in is the one that you, listener, certainly know. Indeed, 
they were the most famous executions in the history of France. The execution of the royal family, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. Louis XVI had long been imprisoned as the revolution grew more and more radical, and he was sentenced to die on January 19, 1793. But that was a problem because Charles Henry was a loyalist to the crown. He had met the king on amicable terms before, once on business matters, and another time when drawing up the plans for the guillotine. Both times he had walked away with a positive disposition towards him, and Charles was extremely distraught, so when he was given the measures to be taken to execute the king, Charles found himself at an impasse. He was to escort the condemned at 8 o'clock in the morning from the temple to the guillotine. Public letters flooded in, some threatening his life should he resist, others acting him to join into a conspiracy to break the king out. Charles desperately hoped the latter would occur, and he even armed himself to assist should the hour come, but he did not waver in his duty. He was a Sanson, after all. Sansons were executioners. They were not called to pass judgment, only the sword. And so, Sanson prepared for the worst while hoping the best, and the best never came. Charles wrote down his memories of that day. Quote, As he approached the steps of the scaffold, I cast a last glance around. The people were silent, the drums sounding, and not the slightest sign of a rescue being at hand was given. Charlemagne was as troubled as I was. As to my brother, Martin, he was younger and had more firmness. He advanced respectfully, took off his hat, and told the king that he must take his coat off. There is no necessity, answered he. Dispatch me as I am now. My brother insisted, and added that it was indispensably necessary to bind his hands. This last observation moved him greatly. He reddened, and exclaimed, What? Would you dare touch me? Here is my coat, but do not lay a finger on me. After saying this, he took the coat. Charlemagne came to Martin's assistance, and, scarcely knowing how to address the illustrious victim, he said, in a cold tone which could hardly conceal his profound emotion, It is absolutely necessary. The execution cannot proceed otherwise. In my turn, I interfered, and bending an ear to the priest, Monsieur, I asked, ask the king to submit. While I tie his hands, we can gain time, and perhaps some assistance may be forthcoming from the crowd. The abbey looked sadly and eagerly into my face, and then, addressing the king, Sire, said he, submit to this last sacrifice, which shall make you look more like our Savior Christ. The king held out his hands, while his confessor was presented a crucifix to his lips. Two assistants tied the hands which had wielded a scepter. He then ascended to the steps of the scaffold, supported by the worthy priest. Are these drums going to sound forever, he said to Charlemagne. On reaching the platform, he advanced to the side where the crowd was the thickest and made such an imperative sign that the drummers stopped for a moment. Frenchmen, he exclaimed in a strong voice, you see your king ready to die for you. May my blood cement your happiness. I die innocent of what I am charged with. He was about to continue when the head of the staff ordered the drummers to beat, and nothing more could be heard. In a moment, he was bound to the weight plank, and a few seconds afterwards, while under my touch, the knife was sliding down, and he could still hear the voice of the priest pronouncing these words, Son of St. Louis, ascend to heaven. End quote. His assistant showed the crowd 
the head. Instead of cheers, the majority of them turned away in horror and silence. Charles Henry left the execution and disappeared. Not even his wife and children knew where he was. We only find out later, after his death, when two nuns and a priest came forward. The majority of the priesthood had been expelled or eradicated, yet Charles had hunted over several days these down. Together, they participated in a private mass for Charles Henry, for his regicide. Not so much for the memory of King Louis, as much for the conscience of Sanson's sins. But the headsman never wants for heads. By August of 1793, a revolutionary tribunal was in place, and the guillotine was going to once again be put into action. Soon after the king's death, Marie Antoinette followed. By Sanson's account, the death of Marie Antoinette was a political one. As a loyalist, he much liked the queen. And so, we have his exchange as they also made their way to the scaffold. It follows, quote, On reaching the Place de la Révolution, the cart halted precisely opposite the large walk of the Tuileries. For a few moments, the queen was plunged in painful contemplation. Her color faded away, her eyelids trembled, and she was heard to murmur, My daughter! My children! The sight of the scaffold recalled her to herself, and she prepared to descend. My grandfather and my father supported her. As she placed her foot on the ground, Charles Henry Sanson, who was bending toward her, said in her ear, Have courage, madame. The queen looked around, as if surprised to find pity in the heart of the man who was about to put her to death, and answered, Thank you, sir. Thank you. A few yards separated the cart from the guillotine. My father continued to offer to support her, but she declined, saying, No, I am, thank heaven, strong enough to walk that short distance. She advanced slowly, but with a firm step, and mounted the scaffold as majestically as if the steps of the guillotine had been those of the grand staircase at Versailles. Her arrival on the platform produced some confusion. The abbey, who had wished to follow her, was going on with his useless exhortations. My father thrust him aside, wishing to finish the execution without the loss of a second. The assistants took possession of Marie Antoinette. While they were tying her down to the weight plank, she exclaimed in a loud voice, Farewell, my children. I'm going to see your father soon. End quote. How many people are put in a position of killing their very own leader? And not only that, a leader that you love and are devoted to most fanatically. I know you, listener, may be one of those chortling right now, thinking, I'd love a crack at my leader today. Okay, but imagine, perhaps, killing someone you really respected and looked up to because it was your job, and to fail to do so, it would bring the whole institution down, especially on your head. Imagine executing somebody like Abraham Lincoln, or FDR, or Ronald Reagan, or Barack Obama, or whoever you revere and admire. That is what's going through Charles Henry's mind when King Louis and Marie Antoinette were on the chopping block. And the fact that he went through his deeds is a testament unto itself, but it's hard not to imagine how that scars a person, and how there are very few ordinary citizens in history who would have been forced to go through such an act. And the worst part is, it's not going to end there. Charles Henry will execute Maximilien Robespierre, the leader of the Reign of Terror, the Dukes of Orléans and Chalet, George Danton, the first head of the Committee of Public Safety, 
Many of the founders of the revolution, the Girardins, the mayor of Paris, generals, ex-parliament members, bishops, marquis, counts, marshals, not to mention the thousands of plebeians, printers, minor noblemen, even children he was forced to execute. As we've said before, this takes a toll on a man's psyche. In fact, the journals listed in the memoirs abruptly end, and his grandson gives an explanation as to why. That is tragic. He says, quote, My grandfather's diary here comes to an end. He gives no warning of his intention to discontinue this daily record of his bloody mission, but I think I can explain this sudden conclusion. He was a strong and callous man, but few, even among the hardest, could have resisted the work which the Revolutionary Tribunal provided for him. His constitution gave way, and his spirits also. He had a violent attack of tremors and delirium after the execution of Robespierre's so-called murderers. Martin, his brother, who usually took his place whenever there was an occasion for doing so, perceived that the old executioner was breaking down. He was pale, agitated, and uneasy. The slightest noise made him shudder, and he avoided his relatives. He had no longer related to his wife and children the scenes in which he acted the chief part, and his usual state of mind was a dark moodiness which he retained to his last day. End quote. To make matters worse on top of this, Charles Henry was arrested shortly thereafter on account of conspiracy against the state. Someone had written underneath a signature a piece of paper that he had taken an oath against them. He slept in the same cell Marie Antoinette had occupied through her trial. To his luck, he was acquitted, but it goes to show you that no one during this revolution was safe. Charles Henry Sanson died in 1805, passing the mantle onto his son for a short while, and finally to his grandson in 1819, Henry Sanson. Henry continued the family business, and he executed over a hundred people, but then, on March 18, 1847, he altogether unexpectedly received a letter. Quote, I immediately recognized the large envelope and seal of which the sight had even sent a thrill through my frame. I took the ominous message with a trembling hand and expected that it contained one of those sinister orders which I was bound to obey, and I entered the house and went to my study where I broke the fatal seal. It was my dismissal. A strange and indefinable sentiment took possession of me. I raised my eyes to the portraits of my ancestors. I scanned all of those dark, thoughtful faces, whereupon was depicted the very despair which had hitherto haunted me. I looked at my grandfather, dressed in a shooting costume, leaning on his gun and stroking his dog, perhaps the only friend he had. I looked at my father, his hat in hand, and clad in the sable garb he had ever worn. It seemed to me that I was informing all these dumb witnesses that there was an end of the curse which had weighed on their race. Then, ringing the bell, I asked for a basin and water, and alone with God, who sees in our hearts, I solemnly laved those hands which the blood of my brethren was henceforth never to soil. End quote. With just the stroke of a pen, the curse of the Sanson family had been lifted. Henry Sanson quickly sold his estate the majority of his belongings that he had inherited, and left Paris. Originally, he intended to leave for America, yet the death of his mother kept him in France. Living under a pseudonym, retreated from the world, left to his thoughts, 
he published the memoirs and disappeared from all traces of history. I think one of the most fascinating parts of reading the memoirs has been chronicling the absolute weight that the occupation took on the Sanson family. For 200 years, they were forced into an occupation considered criminal. I mean, taken on top of the fact that the occupation involved killing people. Those two facts combined made life a living hell for them. Yet it consistently crops up that they felt they were upholding a duty to society that no one else fulfilled. And so they felt compelled, not just by law, but by nature itself, to uphold it in the end. But I think perhaps the most fascinating part of the Sansons, and probably what appeals to you, listener, has been the descriptions about how those who are about to die approach the reality of their situation. Inasmuch as we've been highlighting the relationship between executioner and executed, there's something human about how people approach death, especially death that is taking away this mortal coil early. I wish I had time to relate every execution in the memoirs, because each one is a testament to how humans approach their final moments. They run the gambit. Some take it with steely resolve, some with jokes, some with tears. Some faint, some grin. One group struck up singing La Marseillaise as they were waiting for the guillotine like it's a scene out of Les Miserables. And you really can't tell how people will react when they step out of the cart to finally see the scaffold, the contraption that will take away the most precious gift of life, riches, fame, poverty, debauchery, devoutness, it all goes out the window and they act merely human. There's something about that which just strikes me as the most real experience a person can read and get to. This moment where everything falls away and it's just the headsman and you. Perhaps that's why we are attracted to reading and listening to it. And this goes on for dozens of in-depth accounts in the memoirs, hundreds of names listed, and thousands unlisted. We don't know how many people the Sanson family executed. Judging by just Charles Henry in the Revolution alone, it would have been in the tens of thousands. And each one, a Sanson, stood by at trial, listened to the last requests in their cell, took them through the streets to their place of death, led them to the scaffold, and finally wielded the blade themselves that did the fatal act. High Crimes and History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or find us at our website at highcrimesandhistory.com. Thank you.